Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And today is our continuation of our two-parter on Joe Carstairs. And I'm not going to do a lot of rehashing of part one because part two runs very long already. So if you haven't already listened to part one, go back and do that, or a lot of this isn't going to have context to make sense. But when we left off in part one, Joe Carstairs had returned to Great Britain uh, after a race in the U.S., and she had just opened her own boatyard in East Cows with her mechanic, Joe Harris, as the chief engineer. The first project for this new firm, called Sylvia after one of Joe's friends, was constructing another competition boat. This was the Estelle 4. So you might remember from the previous episode that Joe had commissioned several other boats, all named Estelle after her mother. Then she realized that her mother was actually named Evelyn, but that didn't bother her really. So she continued with the naming theme of Estelle. Uh, tall walls went up around the Sylvia construction yard because Joe wanted no one to be able to see what was being built. And until June 1929, when Estelle 4 was unveiled, the press would refer to this project with names like the Hush Hush Boat. And when this new 35-foot watercraft was revealed, it was lauded in the papers as incredibly well-designed and just incredibly beautiful. Joe took the Estelle 4 back to Detroit for the the Harmsworth Cup, This time, she set a British record during the trials of 64 miles an hour. Things were looking really good for Joe in this race, which was great, because we talked last time about several unfortunate incidents in her racing career. However, then she hit a log and damaged the engine mount on the boat. The universe was also not done with Joe and her team, because then the Estelle 4 slipped off the crane that was loading it up after the race, which caused further damage to the boat. And so it seems that the good fortune that surrounded Joe's early boating races was really dwindling. And as her celebrity grew, Joe was also at odds with her identity and her place in the public sphere. So at one point, while giving an interview for a magazine in October of 1929, Joe told the interviewer very seriously that if anything bad ever happened, she would save her doll, Lord Todd Wadley, first. Uh, for his safety, Wadley, who we talked about how she got it in the first episode, uh, Wadley never raced with Joe. She always had him safely kept on shore. And during that same interview where she was sort of talking about how Wadley was really more important than she was in some ways, she also kind of, uh, just as an aside, pointed out another woman that was present to the reporter and she said, oh, that's actually Marion Carstairs. So she was kind of doing this weird thing where she was deflecting attention from herself to other people and inanimate objects. It's kind of this, it's kind of a, a window into how she felt about being in the press all the time. So this timing of her apparent unease with being in the public eye, even as she was relishing their adoration, also was happening at the same time as a shift in cultural attitudes. So the post-war 1920s had really celebrated Joe's brash style and her unconventional life. But a number of events took place in the last years of the 1920s that made those same traits that had previously drawn accolades instead draw suspicion. First was a backlash to a book that was published called The Well of Loneliness by Radcliffe Hall. And that was published in 1928. 
And this book, which is considered to be a trailblazing example of lesbian literature, was actually banned. And newspapers ran stories and editorials about the pestilence of sexual inversion that had fallen upon society and how this was evidence of it. Second, the German silent film Pandora's Box was released, which starred Louise Brooks. And that came out in 1929. So a female character in this film named Countess Anna Geschwitz had this rather vulturing approach to her sexual interest in Brooks's character. And this continued the idea that lesbianism was this dark and sinister force and was also really coercive. Uh, if you are interested in learning more about, like, the trends and how sexual orientation was portrayed in film, like, go watch The Celluloid Closet. Because <laughs> it will walk oh, you through. Oh, it's so good. Yeah, it's so good. And there's, like, a whole history of uh, of like gay men and lesbians being portrayed as these sinister evil forces who were preying on young people. And third, a military man going by the name of Colonel Victor Barker was indicted for bankruptcy in the late 1920s. But when Colonel Barker, who had a wife, was in police custody, officials realized that he did not have male genitalia. Uh, to them, he was not biologically male. And so Barker was charged with, provi- with uh, providing false information on a marriage certificate and consequently was sentenced to nine months in prison. And this was huge news. It was in all the papers. And it once again drew attention in a negative way to any tor- sort of sexual inversion or any sort of uh, fluidity on the gender spectrum. So in addition to these changing social perceptions of lesbianism, the Wall Street crash of 1929 put a huge damper on the party atmosphere that had made Joe's unconventional life something that people were really able and willing to accept and celebrate. So the gaiety of the roaring 20s was officially over. And as this tide turned, the press started to take a more negative tone when they were covering Joe Carstairs. Reporters started to point out her various foibles that didn't align with common perceptions of femininity. And whereas she had been described as charmingly unconventional when she had been the press's darling, at this point, writers started to discuss how coarse she was and how bad all of her habits were. And one American paper called Lord Todd Wadley an absurd mannequin. For the 1930 Harmsworth Cup, Joe once again traveled to the United States, and this time she took two boats, a Stealth 4, which had been rebuilt, and a Stealth 5, which was a new boat. She made it clear that this third attempt at the Cup would be her last one if she did not win. The sport was really too expensive, and she knew that not even her inheritance would allow her to just keep doing it forever. She had spent more than half a million dollars just on the Harmsworth races. And once again, the trials went incredibly well. Joe even surpassed the speed record, which was held by the Americans, reaching 94.5 miles per hour in the Estelle 5. And just for context, that's the American speed record, not saying that that was the world record that the Americans held. Uh, however, on race day, once again, things just did not go Joe's way. Both the Estelle 4 and the Estelle 5 broke down, and Joe was unable to finish the race. And when she got back to land and got out of the boat, she told onlookers and reporters, well, you better get a good look at me because I am not coming over again. In the wake of her defeat, Joe told several stories about events that happened in their in their travels. We don't know which, if any of these stories are true, but they're all, they all connect through this larger narrative that Joe told of a fortune teller who predicted them. 
Yeah, after all of these bad things happened, she told people that, oh, a fortune teller before I even left London told me these things were going to happen. Uh, and so this alleged fortune teller told Carstairs that her rivals were going to try to sabotage her efforts and kill her at Harmsworth by forcing a crash. And while she had crashed the previous year, in this instance, her boats actually didn't crash. She had mechanical failure. Uh, the second premonition of the possibly made-up fortune teller warned Joe about a house fire. And the house she was renting during her trip did have a fire, uh, and Lord Todd Wadley was supposedly saved from said fire by a little boy who happened by and saw the doll sitting, like, on a window ledge. And Wadley's rescuer, Joe told everyone, was uh, amply rewarded with all the ice cream he could consume. And news reports at the time do corroborate this fire at Joe Carcere's rented home. But she... had framed the earlier one like no one had been home and this little boy saw it and and rescued her doll. But in fact, Joe was there. She actually helped firefighters as they worked to save other nearby cottages. And there's no mention in any papers of a little boy, you know, rescuing some precious item and being rewarded. The third event that Joe claimed to have been warned about by this fortune teller was a car crash. As Joe and her group left their rented house to head to the train station and then back home to England, Their car lost traction with the road and spun into a ditch, although everyone was fine. We don't have any corroboration of this story, so we really don't know if it's true or not. But we do know that when Joe returned home uh, from the Harmsworth race in 1930, having vowed to never return to that race again, her life had really changed. So not only was she kind of putting away that one race that was kind of one of the, the big ones that she had been pursuing, but X Garage, which you'll remember was the, the chauffeur service that was run entirely by women that she had set up with friends, had actually closed in 1928. So at the time when it closed, she was very busy with racing, but now she went home and she didn't have that business to keep her busy. And two of her friends from that business, Barty Colclaw and Joan Mackern, had gotten married since. So it wasn't like they could easily restart the business. They were busy with their new lives and and their husbands. And so Joe raced boats in Britain for a little while, but she really never regained the success that she had attained so early on. We'll talk about Joe's next moves and how she coped with this shift in her life. But first, we're going to take a brief moment to talk about one of the sponsors who keeps this show going. So we've been talking a lot lately about Squarespace, which is this easy-to-use, drag-and-drop, intuitive way to make your own website without needing to know anything about how to actually make a website. I have done this. I literally used it to make my wedding website. Hooray! You have seen it. I have! (laughs) I'm still tinkering with it, so I'm not showing it to everyone yet. But yeah, they are not kidding about having lots of beautiful designs that you can come, you can choose from to make just clean, nice-looking websites that look great on any kind of tablet. The thing that I've been messing with looks great on uh, on a laptop screen and a big monitor and a, uh, an iPhone and a tablet. Like, it looks great on everything that I have tried to show it on. Uh, and it also was super-duper easy. So we have mentioned that it costs as little as $8 a month. And if you sign up for a whole year, which I did, it includes a free domain name. And that domain name registration process was literally the easiest I've ever experienced and I've bought domain names from like four or five different places before. So Squarespace, easy, awesome way to make a really beautiful website without a whole lot of fuss or headache. And if you use our offer code, which is history, you get 10% off your first purchase. So 
Go to squarespace.com slash history. You'll get a 14-day free trial with no credit card necessary. And then with the offer code history, you can also get 10% off your first purchase. That is squarespace.com. Very helpful to my own personal wedding planning. So back to Joe. After a series of racing failures punctuated by a race uh, there in Europe against fellow yachtswoman Virginie Herriot that Joe lost by 17 minutes, Kirsteers had just had it. She actually threatened to emigrate. But instead, she set off with a friend named Mabs Jenkins and her doll, Lord Todd Wadley, on a trip around the world in 1931. India, in particular, was a favorite of Joe's. She told people that she believed her father, Albert Carstairs, had died there. She and Mab took up big game hunting, shooting panthers and crocodiles. And they spent more than a year traveling all over the globe, eventually picking up a man from Sri Lanka as a guide and a servant along the way. When the trip was over, Joe continued to support her Sri Lankan friend for the rest of his life. Yeah, I don't I didn't detail it throughout the this outline, but I do want to point out that one thing that is consistent in Joe Carstairs' life is that she really did financially take care of a lot of her friends. Like when X Garage closed, those women that she had been friends with that she ran it with she continued to give them their salary for the rest of their lives. She would basically, like any friends that had worked for her, they pretty much earned that salary forever, even long after they had stopped working on whatever the project was. She really did sort of take care of people with all of her money. And once Joe and Mab had wrapped up their travels, Joe ended up kind of being um, bicontinental. She took up living both in London and New York. And so in London, she and Ruth still shared a home together. Uh, Ruth, remember, was her long-term girlfriend that she had been with for quite a while. They didn't have an exclusive relationship, but they were very close. And then in New York, Joe lived with another paramour, Isabel T. Pell. And though Ruth and Joe had always had this open relationship, Ruth became incredibly jealous of Isabel. And left alone in London, Ruth really developed a pretty bad drinking problem, and she began using and abusing drugs. And the relationship between Ruth and Joe really became strained and crumbled to a great degree. And even with two homes to choose from, Joe just really couldn't stay in one place. Instead, she started sailing more often than not, using her fleet to carry her anywhere she wanted to go. She traveled to an island 500 miles southwest of Panama to look for buried treasure, although she did not find any. Yeah, uh, yeah. she had lots of little adventures like that. Uh, and you may recall our mention of the Cunard liner Berengaria in the first episode of this two-parter. And that was the ship that carried Joe across the Atlantic when she was traveling there for the first Harmsworth race that she participated in. And she had been really, really impressed with this liner. So she decided to build a smaller scale replica of it for her own personal needs. And Joe's vessel, which was named Berenia, was a fast motor cruiser that also had every possible amenity, including a dance floor and a full cocktail bar. At this point, it was 1933. And Joe's life, which really looked charmed, even with the departure of her luck from her boating career, It's actually something of a mess. She still had a comfortable income from her trust funds, but she hadn't paid taxes in Britain or the United States at all during the 1920s. This was bad. She was in trouble. She eventually disclosed to those close to her that she was about $100,000 behind on her unpaid taxes. 
And around this same time, Joe saw an ad in an American paper about an island that was for sale in the British West Indies, which was a tax haven. So in 1934, she bought the island of Whale Key. She left behind her failed boating career and her tax bill, and she moved to Whale Key permanently. Ever one to add theatricality to a tale, Joe said that Whale Key had really beckoned to her. She would later tell people, this island had a particular liking for me. The island, which is now called Big Whale Key, is about nine miles long and about a thousand acres in area. There were no roads on the island when Joe bought it. She didn't bring any cars with her, and she planned to travel on foot or by dinghy. So the Bahamas at this point were really experiencing an economic depression. The end of prohibition in the U.S. had cut off the alcohol smuggling trade that had brought quite a bit of money in through the area. And immigration laws in the U.S. were tightening, so fewer people were able were able to move from the Bahamas to a place with more lucrative potential, that being the U.S. Additionally, these islands had been repeatedly uh, just beaten over the course of several years by an array of hurricanes and tropical storms. And on some of the more remote islands, things were really dire. Starvation was a very real problem for the people that lived there. Of the 60,000 people who lived in, bah- in the Bahamas at that time, 50,000 of them were black, but the ruling class was white and was clustered around Nassau. Joe Carstairs was not the first white person who tried to tame Whale Key. One previous owner thought that he would turn it into a sisal plantation. A hotel venture tried to make it into a resort, but Prohibition's end had then dried up the flow of vacationers who went there to drink. And then there was Joe. That hotel group had been the one that sold her the island. And she hired locals to help her clear a path through the overgrown sisal to lay road. And she worked right alongside them, though initially she felt like they had trouble understanding and getting accustomed to this kind of labor. And she really felt like she struggled to establish her leadership. But according to her, the men that she was working with on this road came around when they saw her take a snake's head off one day while they were eating lunch by simply throwing a knife at it. She hired more workers to erect buildings. Then there were 26 miles of road that were laid, and soon a store was in operation on the island. Joe paid the men who worked for her $4 a week. The women were paid $3. And Joe was seen as a benefactor, and men and women from the other islands in the Bahamas moved to Whale Key to look for work. Before long, there were hundreds of people working to build Joe's vision for the island. She had uh, initially been living temporarily in the home that was originally built by the sisal farmer, but it was in a really poor state. And what she was really focused on was building a much finer home called the Great House on another spot on the island. And the Great House had a Spanish villa-style design with a red tile roof. It had five bedrooms, five baths, a cold room for storage, dining, living, and kitchen areas, and a massive fireplace for cool evenings. So... Uh, aside for the cat people, Joe brought a cat with her to Whale Key, really as a measure of trying to control vermin. And her foreman on the Great House Project, Mickey Moore, also brought a cat because neither of these cats were spayed or neutered. Soon the island was full of cats. <laughs> yeah, just one of those uh, examples of how quickly a population can happen. It's a little invasive species kind of thing. Uh, Joe also rebuilt the lighthouse. At Whale Key, she cleared the coconut groves. She had the area around the Great House landscaped with vegetation and basically gave the entire island a makeover. A power plant was erected, a schoolhouse, a museum, which largely seemed to be 
about Joe and a granary. And Joe is basically building her own little world on Whale Key, and she then put up a wall around everything. While she's most associated with Whale Key, Joe actually bought three other islands, Bird Key, Cat Key, and Devil's Key. And she also bought parts of two others. She set up plantations for all manner of fruits and vegetables and even peanuts on these other islands. And while Ruth and Joe's relationship had really dwindled to almost nothing at this point, uh, Joe did invite Ruth to come and live with her in this new island paradise she was building. But Ruth refused. She just did not see the appeal of living on an island in the middle of nowhere. Uh, so instead, Joe bought her a vacation home in Miami. And so Ruth could go stay in Miami and then occasionally come down to visit Whale Key. Eventually, about 200 people lived on Whale Key, although more uh, had worked there during the massive construction surge. Once Joe's great house was complete, visitors came at a steady pace. Joe entertained all kinds of people, including friends who were similarly fortunate to have inherited family money, famous actresses, even royalty. The Duke and Duchess of Windsor stopped by in 1941. And by all accounts, Joe loved to entertain her guests. She would either take them to see the island's many beautiful locations or... At least on one occasion, she convinced the locals to feign an attack on the Great House so she could tell her friends that the natives were rioting and that everyone in the Great House might be killed. And she played this trick just to watch her pampered friends panic and think that these wild people were going to tear them apart. So many levels of offensiveness. Yes. It reminds me of uh, an amusement park near where I grew up that was called Tweetsie Tweetsie Railroad where when I was a child, there would be a mock attack on the train that, when I was a child, was always done by, quote, Indians. Joe had a steady supply of mistresses, and she would eventually tire of each of them, although she kept photos of the women that she had been involved with. Yeah, there's actually some debate about, you know, who was the dumper and who was the dumpy in some of those relationships. Joe always claimed it had been her that had gotten bored and wanted to move on. But that's not always the consistent story told across multiple people's recollection. Uh, just as a point of note. Next up, we're going to discuss Joe in the context of the culture of the Bahamas. And we kind of gave you a taste of that with her having... The, the black residents there feign these attacks on the great house. But uh, first, we're going to have a quick sponsor break. So one of the fascinating things about the people that Joe hired and how she treated them, uh, and it really jumped out to me in the research, was that she actually felt like wom- women shouldn't have to work. And for someone so willing to buck the expectations of gender roles and do a great deal of work herself, this really is a bit surprising. But she said that if there weren't so many lazy men, women wouldn't have to go to work. In one particular arena, Joe really clashed with the customs of the resident Bahamians who lived on Whale Key. Most of them practiced obi, which is also pronounced obia uh, by some folks, which is a was a local religion, and Joe forbade its practice. This was especially confusing to the locals because many of them thought that her attachment to Lord Todd Wadley was in many ways uh, similar to the sorts of things that were practiced in their religion. They thought the doll was basically her talisman, and some of them believed that it was magical and possibly the thing that gave her so much confidence and power. Joe, who all her people simply called the boss was also excellent at sussing out problems and knowing when people were being deceitful, which 
only earned her more and more respect, and it also furthered this belief that she might, in fact, be able to practice magic. Uh, she would hear grievances from people each morning after breakfast. She would issue judgments on the matters that were brought to her. And once she made a decision, that was it, and it was settled. She really was the boss of the island. And despite her own tendency to maintain this rotating assortment of lovers, she barred any of the island's inhabitants from having sex outside of marriage. She'd also insist that all couples be married. She usually performs these ceremonies herself. Joe would banish adulterers from the island, and she also fined men who beat their wives. Even after she got notice from Nassau that she did not have the authority to be doing that and that collecting such fines was illegal. But she didn't care. It was her kingdom. Uh, she even had a little police force that she set up on Whale Key, and that consisted of four men that Joe had appointed. She armed them with sawed-off shotguns. She also had a watchman who carried a machete, and she never hesitated herself to serve as a protector of her kingdom. In 1937, Joe's longtime on-again, off-again lover, Ruth Baldwin, died in London after collapsing at a party. The cause of her death was probably a drug overdose. Joe immediately traveled to England via boat, of course, and she spent the voyage drinking with her friend Tim Brooke, who helped her manage the island and offered to make the journey with her. Joe had arranged to have Ruth's body embalmed so she could see her once she arrived in England. She and Lord Todd Wadley sat with Ruth, with Ruth in a room that Joe had filled with flowers, and they mourned. When Joe's visitation was over, Ruth's body was cremated. And one of the reasons uh, that she spent most of that voyage drunk is that she had only packed pants uh, for the trip and women were not allowed in the main dining areas if they weren't wearing a skirt. And so she and her friend just were like, fine, we'll hang out in our cabin and drink cocktails. Uh, so once they returned to Whale Key, Joe built an Anglican church on the island as a memorial to Ruth. And the Bishop of Nassau came to dedicate it in 1938. The Reverend Julian Henshaw was the minister of the church, and he was a man getting into all manner of trouble. So unfortunately, he kind of upholds a lot of the stereotypes of um, corrupt church officials. Uh, and while the Nassau bishop was likely very happy to be rid of him, Joe genuinely seemed to love him. Joe claimed that the tears that she shed after Ruth's death were the first she had ever experienced in her life. She also wrote poetry about loss which she privately published in two volumes that were commingled with work by another friend, Helen Volk. While the poems aren't generally considered to be especially good, they offer insight into the very real attachment that Joe had to Ruth, and even when they were living largely separate lives. Lord Todd Wadley, who, as you may recall, had been a Christmas present from Ruth to Joe, became even more deeply treasured upon among her possessions. And through all of this and all of the various things that happened in her life, Joe was ruling over her kingdom. And at this point, Whale Key was sort of a small country unto itself. It had a governing body that consisted of Joe and her friends, which she had assigned to various posts of leadership. It ran like a government in many ways. They had offices organized to handle various needs and services, including a treasury. Joe insisted that everyone on the island go to church every Sunday. Babies that were born on Whale Key were brought to her to be named. In short, Whale Key had become kind of a weird monarchy, and so much so that press, the press got wind of the operation and wanted to write stories about it. 
Both the Saturday Evening Post and Life magazine put the story of Whale Key and Joe's kingdom on their covers. And they lauded her for teaching these islanders trades and for bringing the idea of education and self-sufficiency to the Bahamas. And this bolstered Whale Key's image as a place of salvation for struggling islanders. In some ways, with today's perspective, it's kind of like, that's kind of a white person's conceited approach to it. But it was an opportunity for people that were really struggling. And so the population of Whale Key swelled to more than 500. In 1939, Joe started the Colored League of Youth, and that intended to improve the standard of living for the residents of the Bahamas. And while her intention may have been noble... This effort was tinged with a certain conceit of knowing what was better for the people of the Bahamas than they themselves did. The League's charter read, The rest of the world has a bad opinion of the colored people of these islands. The colored people do not prosper in the way that they should. They do not seem to care or want to get on. This must be changed. So that sounds not quite horrible, but then it went on to say that most of the black Bahamian population was not very bright, could not be trusted, or were just lazy. Yeah, there's definitely a very complex dynamic at play here. Uh, This manifesto that she wrote for the League was really filled with positive advice and rhetoric, kind of urging people to try to be smart and clever and to have self-confidence and be moral and stay healthy and practice good hygiene But there was also a a whole secondary political agenda in play. So Joe was subsidizing farming for members of the League in an effort to make them self-sufficient. But she also wanted to stick it to the white politicians who had made their money from importing goods that Carstairs felt could be grown there on the islands. But the relationship that Joe had with the black population of her island property was really complicated. There were some ways in which she saw them as comrades, She also saw them as her subordinates. She had this weird sort of colonialism that she set up on Whale Key. Yeah, it's kind of one of those instances where uh, in reading her biography, it comes up over and over, not just in this situation of race relations in the Bahamas, but she kind of would have, she would get in her head what she felt was sort of an idealist view, and she would just charge ahead with it, even if it kind of was blinded and didn't really take into account all of the moving parts and then it could be hurting the very people she was trying to help. Well, and then uh, she also wrote a manifesto in which she called those same people lazy and untrustworthy. But she could save them. That was <laughs> I I'm not I'm not defending her as that, but that was her mindset was that she was going to show them to not be those things. Uh but this did certainly get the attention of Nassau's bureaucrats that she kind of wanted to um cause trouble for. This effort worked, but so much so that she actually received a warning from the House of Assembly of the Bahamas that she should terminate the League because it was likely to only incite racial discord. And so she withdrew the Colored League of Youth Manifesto from its uh, government filing in 1940. And this was sort of a startlingly acquiescent move, although she did continue some of the practices on her own outside of an officially recognized organization. However, just a year later, Joe Carstairs was once again riling up the government, this time claiming that it was to blame both for the poverty in the islands and the high incidence of syphilis throughout the population. The government was so furious at her very public accusations. I mean, she made these statements in the press that members of the government were more worried about tourism than these very real problems that they started threatening to deport her. 
Meanwhile, the remaining shreds of the colored League of Youth that Joe had kept going through uh, subsidies that basically she was funding out of pocket had also fallen apart. And a new millionaire was infusing the Bahamian economy with money. Sir Harry Oakes had arrived and he was building two airfields on New Providence. And some of the Whale Key population actually left Joe's kingdom to work on this new project. Others moved to the States when the U.S. entered the war, eager to fill the empty jobs there. Joe offered the British Navy her beloved boat Sonia 2 for service and was turned down. After Pearl Harbor was bombed, she offered it to the U.S. Navy, but her gesture was once again turned down. What Joe really wanted to do was to join the war effort herself. But as her half-brother Francis Francis told her, wrong age, wrong sex. Joe did manage to help by running uh, a rescue mission or two with her boats. And in 1943, she found a way to be consistently useful, as many of the freighters that normally carry goods to the Bahamas had been conscripted into war service. She set up a small transport company to haul bananas, sugar, rice, and rum uh, from Miami, Haiti, and Cuba, sort of in that circle. But despite all of her efforts to help, uh, there were odd rumors that started circulating about her, including hints that she was secretly a Nazi sympathizer and that she was actually aiding U-boats from Whale Key. Completely unfounded and false, but these weird rumors just kept growing. In 1945, Joe finally finished paying off her back taxes. In 1946, she sold her island Bird Key to her half-brother. When she heard a year later that Frank was selling vegetables from his land back to the workers who grew them, she was furious, and she raided his crops one night with several men in machetes to tear it apart, which also hurt the same people she was defending, but that didn't really seem to factor into her decision. Yeah, that harkens back to the thing I said earlier, where she would get these ideas in her head about what was fair and right, and she would take action on them that often was just as damaging as the thing she felt like she was trying to fix. Uh, she also took up flying briefly in the second half of the 1940s, and it looked like it might be the new boating for her. She really, really loved it because, of course, it offered her a certain freedom. But she was stymied in this new endeavor when authorities denied her a permit to build a private airport. As she moved through the 1950s, she continued to collect lovers, although her health really started to decline she really didn't want to admit that anything was the matter, though, so she often ignored or denied that anything was wrong. And by the time the 1960s rolled around, many of Joe's workers had left Whale Key, and those who remained really didn't treat her with the same level of reverence that she had once commanded. So she just wasn't as happy there, and she started to travel more and more and spend less and less time on the island. In 1975, she finally sold Whale Key for just a little less than $1 million, citing the increase in drug trafficking as the reason for the sale. This was the second time in her life that she cried. She was heartbroken to leave the key. She moved to Florida, and at that, from that time on, she spent her summers in Sag Harbor and Watermill, Long Island, and then she would go to Florida during the winter months. As Joe aged and became less physically healthy, Lord Todd Wadley took over her dashing and rakish life, at least as she told it. She spoke of him being friends with Jack Kennedy. She talked about him having parties and various girlfriends and even an assortment of illegitimate doll children. <laughs> yeah, she got progressively more eccentric as she aged and because she wasn't super healthy and, and active and she didn't have that exciting life, she seemed like she filled in the gaps 
in her head. Uh, she eventually invited a man named Hugh Harrison to move in with her. That was in 1978. And at that point, she claimed she was done with women. And Hugh stayed with her for the rest of her life, although as a non-romantic companion and also a paid helper. He gifted her with dolls and her collection grew. But Lord Todd Wadley was always her best doll love. She became weaker and weaker. She also made up a will, but then she revised it almost 70 times, basically constantly updating it to reflect her most recent state of friendships. Yeah, she seemed almost to be keeping score and tallying who needed what based on, you know, the whatever had been going on in her life recently. I think I, I read one statement that said something like for her to only revise her will like twice in a year was a really small number. She just was constantly kind of making these revisions. Uh, and as she grew progressively more infirm in her early nineties, you know, she was just aging and her body wasn't as able to, to do the things it had once done. And she just was getting progressively weaker, but she really didn't want visitors. She didn't want any friends to see her in anything less than her most commanding state. She slipped into a coma on December 18th, 1993, and died that night. She died with Lord Todd Wadley tucked under her arm. Joe and Lord Todd Wadley were cremated together, and their cremains were reunited with Ruth's, and all three of them were placed in a tomb by the sea in Long Island. And that is the long two-part story of Joe Carstairs, who is such a fascinating figure to me. And because of sort of her, uh, you know, her many accolades as a sportswoman and her incredibly ambitious setup of basically a whole kingdom unto itself, it's really sort of surprising that she is not more of a common name, but I would... I can't think of a single person that I spoke to as I was preparing this, which has been over several weeks that I've been reading her biography and talking about it, that anybody has had any idea who she was. I had no idea who she was <laughs> when you came. Yeah, she's, she's um, she was a fascinating woman. I, I just I can't imagine kind of the the grit and determination of someone who lives that life. And I consider myself a fairly determined and gritty person at times, but she just supersedes all of my uh, inklings about what a really, you know, kind of bias for action uh, focused person is. Even if she sometimes made missteps, she just was really astounding. Well, and she's also a good example of how often we get into a story knowing it's going to be interesting, like racing speedboats is going to be an inherently kind of rollicking fun time, probably. And then we get into this whole other layer of a weird colonial and pretty offensive kingdom set up in the Bahamas. Yeah, her biographer, the part where she uh, talked about any babies being born, being brought to Joe for naming, her main biographer uh, mentioned how similar this was to the... uh, slave plantation practice where babies had to be brought to the plantation owner to be named. And so there were definitely some weird race relations going on there. I was telling Tracy, like, I really think Carstairs wanted to work for the betterment of people, even though she had this weird racial bias against them. Uh, It's very tricky and convoluted. It's, you know, humans are unfortunately complex. They're not really always easy and they don't always see a situation in its bigger state. They see their view of it and it's hard to kind of get the wider angle. So do you also have listener mail? I do. This one delighted me so much because it is a postcard 
from Antarctica. It's from our listener, Alex. And it opens with, question, what do you call a penguin in the desert? Answer, lost. Uh, and Alex then says, well, actually, technically, Antarctica is a desert, but... Thanks for all the awesome research you put into your podcasts. I'm an avid listener here at McMurdo Station, where I cook eggs, not penguin eggs, each morning for the winter station population of around 145 people. Fun fact, this postcard is being sent out on the second ever flight scheduled to fly to McMurdo during the Antarctic winter. A few uh, medical evacuations have occurred over the years, but it has never before been planned due to aircraft restrictions of temperatures, the effort to maintain an ice runway, and the difficulties of landing a plane using night vision goggles in lieu of a well-lit runway from lots of lights. Only a decade or so ago, there was another uh, neat advancement made in the U.S. Antarctic program of pioneering a land route for hauling supplies to the South Pole Station with modern tractors and radar devices for finding crevasses. This traverse crew means we have to fly far fewer planes to maintain the research occurring at this, the pole. Uh, pretty neat to once again be going over land like Scott and Shackleton. History repeats itself. Thank you so much, Alex. I love it. Uh, there are gorgeous king penguins on the front of the postcard, and I just love that we got a postcard from Antarctica. I had a friend that did research at McMurdo Station like a million years ago, so uh, super fun. I can't imagine living like that because I am wimpy. <laughs> if you would like to write to us, you can do so at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. We're also at facebook.com slash history on Twitter at history at pinterest.com slash history and at mistinhistory.tumblr.com. We're on Instagram at history, and you can purchase stuffy history class goodies at mistinhistory.spreadshirt.com. If you would like to visit our parent site, that is HowStuffWorks.com. If you would like to visit us, you can do so at MissedInHistory.com for all of our back episodes, uh, show notes from any of the episodes that Tracy and I have worked on over the last few years, and the occasional blog post or other helpful delight. So we encourage you to visit us at HowStuffWorks.com and MissedInHistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 